Well, tonight's going to be a little different because um, I'm going to teach on developing a healthy sexual culture. And I'm going to try to do it in a G-rated form. Because as Bill Johnson um, said to me one time, these people haven't come to a moral revolution conference. And so there's a mixed audience, so you have to be careful how you navigate this. So the struggle is, is that my G and your G probably aren't the same G. So I'm, my wife's up front. Holy Spirit is hovering right around the front row there. And I've been teaching on sexuality for more than 30 years. And I have a, we have a, um, a moral revolution. We have an organization called Moral Revolutions dedicated to sexual purity. Um, if you'd like to know any resources like parents teaching your kids about sexuality, get on moralrevolution.com. We all have all kinds of resources We've written like six books on, on sex and sexuality and purity and dating and all that kind of stuff. We have every, kind of, every question you can think of uh, answered on there. There's a question and answer se- section. And we have a sex therapist who, um, who answers the questions. We have a doctor, a medical doctor, and then our team. So um, if, you've, if you can think of a question, it's probably been asked on there. And there's a whole resource on there. So... You know, if you're afraid, like, talking to your kids, like, they might ask a question I don't know the answer to. It's like, you can just get on there, and it will give you, not a Google answer, it will give you a God answer. How many know Google's not always right? So, um, so I will do my best. If you get offended, just know that wasn't my intention. In fact, I'm working really hard to not do the Chris, who cares thing. I'm trying very diff- trying hard to do the, uh, sorry. Yeah, that was Jesus. Okay. Um. We'll try this one more time and see if it stays, and if it doesn't, we'll... Um. How many of you know that the world perverts sex? You know perversion means the wrong version. Give me the handheld, please. Perversion means the wrong version. How many know that God celebrates sex? I'd say... The world perverts sex, religion shames it, but God celebrates it. How many know there was sex before there was sin? (laughs) Here we go. (laughs) That's the truth. It's it's interesting how um, we attach shame to things that the Bible doesn't attach shame to. For instance, how many know that we were circumcised of heart? And how many know when you were in the Old Testament, you had to be circumcised to actually be a part of the kingdom if you were a man? Circumcision means cutting off the foreskin of a man's penis. That's repeated throughout the Bible. It's like, what I'm getting at is this. Isn't it interesting how men found God in the Old Testament? (laughs) Do you know that before they crossed into the promised land, they crossed the Jordan River, and before they could come into Canaan, into the promised land, they had to pass through a city called Gilgal. And they had a men's meeting. How many of you remember that? And they had to be circumcised before they could come into the promised land. What I'm getting at is this. Isn't it funny that God is not ashamed to talk about a man's penis in the Bible? 
Matter of fact, he says, hey, we need to do something about this before you come. And we're going to have a men's meeting. And it's going to be revealing. And when the men came home from the men's meeting, the women are like, uh, what did you guys talk about? Them? And let me just say that he didn't need to tell her what, he was talk- what they talked about because the way he was walking had a lot to do with what they were talking about. And the Bible talks about sex from Genesis to Revelation. So God is not ashamed of sex. He actually created it. How many of you know when God said, be fruitful and multiply, he's the one who gave you a sex drive? How many of you know that? Where did the rest of you get yours? <laughs> and the question is, what does it mean to have a sex drive? That's a good question. I've been asking this all over the world in about 40 countries. I ask, we do these moral revolution conferences that are typically filled with young people, and then we do a parent night, and I ask them, what does it mean to have a sex drive? Because I ask everybody, how many of you know God gave you a sex drive? Almost everybody raises their hand, except for the people who won't raise their hand for anything. And I say, what does it mean to have a sex drive? And everybody's, I don't know. It means you want to have sex with somebody. That's what a sex drive means. It means you want to have sex with somebody. And the goal is not to get rid of your sex drive. The goal is to learn how to manage your appetite. (laughs) This is too bad this is a revelation. People are sitting quiet. Write that down, honey. (laughs) The goal is not to get rid of your sex drive. Like God is not ashamed of your sex drive. I'd like to suggest to you that the world's in a mess and a lot of it has to do with sexuality. It's funny that we'll talk about divorce, but as Paul Manwaring said to me tonight, we hardly ever talk about marriage. The number one reason why people get divorced is sexually incompatibility. And we don't talk about it in church. And guess who's teaching society about sex? The people who pervert it. And then we used to send little Johnny to school to learn about sex because we were ashamed to tell him at home. That's why the school system had to start telling Johnny about it. And then guess what they're teaching Johnny in school? You guessed it. In California, you have to teach kids. You have to teach kids by requirement. You have to teach kids. You could be bisexual, homosexual, heterosexual. You have to teach them about all the different avenues of sexuality. That's who's teaching your kids. But you know why they got the job? Because you're not doing it at home. Send Johnny off to learn about sexuality in School, because that's the right place to teach them. And if you say anything about sex in church, people are like, this is church. Shouldn't we be talking about God in church? We are. He said, be fruitful and multiply. It was the first commandment given to man and woman. So how many know God gave you a sex drive? He's not ashamed of it. He actually celebrates it. Aren't you glad that, like, you didn't, like, you know, how many know it was God's idea to make it fun? This is the way we tell, this is the way we teach sex to our kids. You're not going to like it. It's painful. You could go blind. You could get a disease. That's the way we talk. 
God doesn't tell a sex story like that. Aren't you glad, like, God didn't make you, like, lay on a, you know, sit on an egg for nine months like birds? I mean, how many people would be here? <laughs> if we were like birds, you know, all right, your turn. No, no, I sat on them yesterday. <laughs> Trust me, you wouldn't need birth control. So the world shames sex, I'm sorry, perverts sex, and, the, and religion shames sex. Religion's like, oh, yeah, be careful how you say that. Be care- let's, let's whisper it in the corners of our homes. And then our children, then we wonder why our children are so enticed by sexuality. Everybody else is teaching them sex but us. I'm going to have people call and say, hey, I, I, my, my son's 16. I don't know if he's ready to come to the Moral Revolution Conference. <laughs> Dude, where are you coming from? I mean, the, ch- the problem is, is that 10-year-olds are often ready. That's part of the struggle. And do you know the principle of first mention? It goes like this. It says, whoever teaches you about a subject first, that Whoever teaches you about a subject first, what they teach you becomes the foundation in which for the rest of your life you will view that subject. And I believe that God created us like that because he, he intended for children to be taught by their mother and father. So when you teach kids about sex first, and then little Henry, their friend in you know, sixth grade, talks to them about sex they will measure what Henry says by what you told them. But guess what happens if Henry tells them first? When you tell your kid at 14, and the school's already told them at 12, they will measure what you said by what the school taught them. And they tend to scrap whatever doesn't measure up with the first thing they were taught, because that tends to be the foundation of everything they believe. Now, can that change? Of course it can. But how many know it takes a conscious effort to say, I was lied to, that is not true, I will no longer believe that. But wouldn't it just be easier just to lay a foundation the way God intended for your kids? So that when you share with them, and somebody else shares with them a year later, they go, I know, I know to believe about that. My parents taught me about that. Part of the challenge is, is that when we teach them, we ourselves are ashamed. So, you know, when, when little Johnny's, you know, one, we go, this is your finger, your nose, touch your nose, this is your nose, this is your ears, and this is your dinky. <laughs> Don't touch your dinky. And then it's a big deal if they do anything to touch it. Oh, oh, oh. We're unclean for seven days. And what I'm getting at is this, is that little Johnny figures out after a while that you say elbow, nose, ears, but when you talk about certain parts of his body, you make little, you make little other names for it. And what he picks up, or what she picks up, is that there's shame attached to certain parts of the body. So you don't even realize it, but you're shaming sex without trying to. 
Because you're ashamed. See, the reason why you're shaming it is because you're actually ashamed. And you haven't dealt with your own shame. Uh-huh. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. One of the students asked me a question two weeks ago. They say, you're always trying to get people married. Why are you always trying to get people married? Like, like you always trying to, you have this passion to get people married. I do. I admit it. Jen Johnson and I, we have the same passion. <laughs> Listen to this. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. Marriage is to be held in, in honor among all. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators... And adulterers God will judge. Think about this. If the only way... Well, let me, let me make this statement first. I believe that in most countries all over the world, people are delaying marriage. Now, listen, if you're not supposed to get married till you're 40, be free. Don't get married till you're 40. You're not supposed to get married at all. Don't get married. Okay? Woo! Now, don't get mad at me. I gave you an out. Don't get married. If you're not supposed to get married, don't get married. Jesus told me I'm supposed to get married. Then don't get married. Then don't be offended. But I believe that people as a whole, a general statement, a wide brush stroke, is that people are delaying marriage into, their, into the late 20s and 30s, even into their 40s. I mean intentionally delaying is my point. And my question would be this. If the only way you could have sex was marriage... Like if there was nothing else, there was no porn, there was no cohabiting, there was no one-night stands, there was no date stuff, there was none of that, there was no masturbation, there was nothing except for if you wanted to have sex, your only outlet was get married. I bet people wouldn't delay marriage so much. And see, let me tell you something, that's God's plan. So as soon as you take away all other options... Soon as you, if you take away all other options for sex, now you have God's plan. Because Paul said, it's better to marry than to burn with passion. His first statement was, I'd rather that you be like me, single. But each man has his own gift from God. The word gift there is the word charisma. It's the same where we get our, 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 our word for spiritual gifts. In other words, it takes a gift from God to be single for life. Why? Because when God, when God created Adam, Adam was looking for a helper. You remember this? God looked for helpers among the animals. Didn't find any. Didn't find any. Dog lovers. He didn't find any. So what did he do? He put Adam to sleep. You remember this? And where did he, what did he do after that? He took the woman out of the man. Where was the woman? In the man. You... No, you're giving me that. I doubt it. False prophet. Thing. I ain't going there today. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon man, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed it up in that place. The Lord fashioned into a woman the rib which he'd taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, Now this is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called one because she was taken out of the man. What is marriage? It's when the woman who was taken out of the man and the man who no longer has the woman in him merges. 
Marriage comes from the word merge. It means for the, the, the one that became two, now the two became one. That's the reason why two males can't marry. It doesn't create wholeness. I, I'm saying, do whatever, what, listen, whatever you want to do, do. I'm saying, the Bible says that the two, the one became two. When Adam woke up, he said, whoa, man. <laughs> Stupid joke. I'm not the first. He was both man and woman. How do I know that? Because the woman was taken out of the man. And he wakes up and half of him's missing. It's the truth. Half of him's missing. He wakes up. He had to have felt that the female side of God is missing. How many of you know God is not a man? He's both male and female. He created Adam, both male and female. It takes a male and a female to represent God. If you oppress women, you miss half the nature of God. Are you with me? The man wakes up, and he, the feminine side of man is missing. Now, you know, none of us would know what that feels like because you're either feminine or you're masculine. So you're not both. But Adam, in the beginning, was. So I don't know what it would be like, but it had to be pretty dramatic when he wakes up and half of him is missing. And he looks up and he sees half of him in bodily form in front of him. And what's he do? He instantly wants that back. He wants it back. And now he needs the woman the way he needs God. Because he's not complete without the woman in the way he's not complete without God. When God said, I'll make Adam a helper, the word helper there, how many know the Holy Spiritual helper? The word helper is used three times for a woman and 13 times for God in the Old Testament alone. She was the helper the way God's a helper, not a slave. And what I'm getting at is that the sexual union bonds them the way God, when God put them to sleep, divided them. This is what marriage is. It is the reunion of the original way you were created. <laughs> this is beautiful. Did you understand? Like, like sex isn't, not only is it not shameful, it's actually beautiful. It's actually beautiful. And the fact that... Great pleasure comes from sex is actually, a, is actually a prophetic metaphor of how God feels about sex. God's, how you know, Romans 1, God's invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen in what God made, which includes sex. The fact that you love doing it, the fact that you love the act of sex is how much God loves giving the gift to you. God gave it the gift to you. It wasn't the devil. The devil's perverting it. He's stealing it. And he's used... He's using the most beautiful gift God gave to people who will spend their life together. He's perverting that gift and making it the worst thing on the planet. And God made it the best thing. God said, you're going to like this. <laughs> God, how are you going to get them to like do that? It looks uncomfortable. <laughs> oh, yeah, I got a plan. <laughs> anyway, that was funny. God thinks it's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's amazing. And I believe that, you know, part of the reason why there's so many perversions 
is because no one's teaching the version. How many of you can't become what you haven't seen or heard? I, I started more revolution because I have a passion for the subject. I would teach on it five times a year if I didn't feel like people would leave upset. I would. Kathy, she could tell you. I talk about it with our kids when they were growing up. My, my kids would have kids over. We'd sit in the front room and they'd say, hey, Dad, tell, tell my friends that thing. That's the truth, right, Kath? Absolutely true. Uh, my front room would be full with, filled with young men that they either didn't have a daddy or the daddy didn't tell them about sex. And we'd be watching football, and at halftime and commercials, they'd be asking questions. And that's what we did for 10 years while my kids were in their teen years. And that's the truth. So I have no problem with it all. It doesn't make me nervous. It makes me nervous that you're nervous. And it makes me nervous that I could be misunderstood. But I'm actually becoming more passionate as I see society become more perverted. I'm like, and everyone's like, that's wrong, that's wrong. Well, somebody tell them what's right. And somebody tell them what's right, then at least they have a contrast. You know, when you say, well, this is okay. I'm like, the only reason you think that's okay, the only reason you think eating dirt's good, it's because you haven't tasted steak. Because Proverbs says, to a famished person, any bitter thing seems sweet. The reason why you think that's so amazing is because you haven't heard the truth. The people who are teaching you either don't know what they're talking about, or typically they have a perversion of the truth. And I, I think most people are well-meaning. I think our schools are well-meaning. I do. I think they're trying to do the right thing. But I don't think they know what the right thing is. Do you know how big sex is in the Bible? Do you know that weddings lasted a week? That Jewish weddings lasted a week in the Bible. Do you know that? Remember Jesus made wine and the wine ran out? It wasn't because of how much they drank in a day. Weddings lasted a week. And you know how a wedding took place in the Bible? Very typical to an American wedding. There would be a bride and a groom. And there would be the families of the bride and the families of the groom. And while they were exchanging vows, the men from both families would bring their weapons and lay them up in front at the wedding while the vows were taking place. And so the man would make vows, a covenant, lifetime covenant. The woman would do the same. And then there would be no dancing, there would be no drinking, there would be no celebration. And the bride and the bridegroom would go in to the bridal chamber, which typically was a tent, pitched in the middle of the wedding grounds. (laughs) It's a true statement. They would go into the tent and they would consummate the marriage. Then they would take the bloody sheet. You understand? Why there was a bloody sheet? Okay. So we take the bloody sheet. I'm trying to make this G, as much G as possible. (laughs) Listen, I do graphic when we do kids. Because they get graphic the other direction. So they take the, the, the bloody sheet and they throw it over the bridal chamber wall. Well, everybody's outside. Now, maybe I didn't get this to you. The tent's in the middle of the celebration. 
and the people are waiting for them to consummate the marriage. After they consummate the marriage, they take the sheet that should have blood on it, right? Because how many know God gave a woman a hymen? Why did he do that? Only purpose for a hymen. Only one reason. It doesn't heal after it breaks the first time, right? Because God wanted children to be born out of covenant. So he provided the blood. So the covenant was made before the children were conceived. It's a blood covenant. God designed in humanity the ability to make a blood covenant. There's no other reason for a hymen. So who you are intimate with, into me you see, you make a covenant with. Only once. Because that's how God designed it. Everybody else is waiting outside. Now, let me be clear. This was not an over 18 or over 21 event. Little Johnny, who's three, is at this event. Little Mary is at this event. This is a family affair. They're in the tent consummating the marriage. Well, little Johnny and Mary are playing. All of a sudden, there's some noise in the tent, and then there's a sheet. Now, you can imagine little Johnny. He's three. What does he know? He goes, well, I already got in a fight. They've been in there a half an hour. They already got in a fight. And now the celebration starts. So you no know celebration before the consummation of marriage. Are you with me? And now the celebration starts. The dancing, the drinking, the singing. That goes on for a week. Now how many know there's, there's, Jewish culture doesn't have a talk? You know the talk? Some of you are like, we don't have a talk at our house either. We have the figure it out for yourself, kid. You know the talk? Are you, why are you guys looking at me like that? You don't ever look at me like that when I preach. You're nervous. You know the talk? Jewish culture don't have a talk. They have a healthy sexual culture. They don't have to have a talk because little Johnny is exposed to sexuality since he can remember. And that tent becomes a conversation piece. The older he gets, the more revelation his parents give him about what's going on in the tent. But one of the things he realizes is there's no celebration until the bloody sheet. What's he thinking? Why? Why didn't they celebrate when they exchanged vows? Something's going on in that tent. Listen, they were celebrating something going on in that tent. Are you with me? And what they're celebrating is the fact that those two people kept themselves. Theoretically, kept themselves. I'm saying, yeah, you can break all the rules, but I'm saying God set it up so that best case scenario is God's voice. Are you with me? And little Johnny realizes that there's something about this thing that these people celebrated, that these people did, and there's something about the blood, and he's got questions. Of course he has questions. And you can imagine that he's, he enters his teen years and, he, and his sex drive comes alive that he has more questions about what's going on in there. And it's not a shock because he's been going to weddings since he was in his mama's arms. It wasn't an over-18 event. 
And why did the men bring their weapons, you ask? Ah, because the covenant was never between two people. It was between two families. And the men brought the weapons as a prophetic declaration that we will protect this covenant that we made together. That's why a king would marry the daughter of another king and their countries would suddenly be in covenant. Because, the, because covenant was never between two people. It was between two families. Are you with me? I'm debating whether or not to tell you this story that I've told a thousand times. Oh, it's just a great story. But I don't think you want to hear it. You're like, tell a story. We're so nervous. Tell some story. Many years ago, when I was, um, Kathy and I had a youth group. Uh, well, this is the way it happened. The probation department called me one day. We had been praying in a little town called Lewiston, California, which is one hour from here. It's a town of 900 people. It's the town we moved to the first time when we moved out of the Bay Area. We moved to Lewiston before we moved to Weaverville. And, um, and the Lord told me, I'm going to give you Lewiston, which is, you know, that's, don't despise the day of small beginnings, right? He said, I'm going to give you Lewiston. So we, and he said, I want you to pray in Lewiston every Sunday. And I said, till when? He said, till I tell you. So we went every Sunday night for almost exactly a year. Well, we were prepared to do years, but we went every Sunday night for a year. And the Lord said, I want you to go when it's dark. He says, I don't want anybody to know what you're doing. You're spying out a land I'm giving you. Oh, it's all prophetic metaphor. So I'd go down at 9 o'clock at night, and I would walk the streets of Lewiston. You can walk 700 of the, uh, 700 of the people lived in this one area, and you could walk it in exactly 45 minutes. So I'd go walk the streets, usually by myself, and pray, 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 and then I'd get in my car and go home. Just do nothing. The Lord said, don't talk to anybody, and don't tell anybody what you're doing. So I did that. Once in a while, people from church would come and join me. It wasn't very exciting, so I didn't get a crowd. <laughs> One night, a bunch of uh, my friends from church said, hey, I heard you're praying loose. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's not a big, it's kind of a secret. You know, I just kind of walk and pray and can we come with you? And anyway, a particular person came with me who had lots of friends, and I ended up with about 25 people one night. Oh, that was cool. So we walked the streets, and I said, hey, when we're done walking the streets, I want to meet. There was this gym that hadn't been opened in 30 years. I want you to meet in front of the gym, and there was a field right now in front of the gym. I said, let's meet in the parking lot, and I'll meet you in 45 minutes. So they walked the streets with me, and we met at the gym, and we prayed. And this particular night, we prayed, and I know this is going to sound weird, and I think I'm supposed to tell the story anyway. And so we're in a circle and we prayed. And when we started to pray, a voice started screaming out of the field, which is about probably the size of all of Bethel's parking lots. High grass. A voice started screaming out of the field like this. Except for it was a hundred times louder than that. And it echoed through the valley. Well, we're praying. Like someone was being murdered. We stopped praying and the voice stopped. We start praying and the voice started again. And we start, stopped praying, and the voice stopped. And people were like, <laughs> you made your, is one of those things made your hair stand up? And, you know, they don't, haven't been there before. And I haven't experienced that before. So they're like, does this happen when you pray? I'm like, no. <laughs> so everybody wanted to get in their car and go. I'm like, no, 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 no. We're staying until that thing dies. So, we, so I said, when it, gets, when it gets loud, let's get louder. You know, this wasn't Bethel, right? This is pre-Bethel. 
These weren't radical, you know, school ministry students. So like, okay. So I said, let's just be brave. Okay. <laughs> so we started praying and it went, and we, we prayed and it got louder and we prayed and it got louder. And we prayed, we prayed and everybody's like, and I just kept saying, keep praying, keep praying. They, we prayed until we couldn't, we didn't have anything else to pray. And we said, let's pray in tongues. And we prayed in tongues and the thing went, Just like that. And stopped. I'd prayed a year there. That was the last night I prayed there. The next morning, without any me asking for anything, the probation department called and said, would you like to start a youth group in Lewiston? The next day, Monday morning. We'd like you to, we have these parents, the kids of, they said, we have these kids who are on probation. There's 37 of them. And we're going to start a training for their parents. And they're going to have a choice. They can either go to ju- back to juvenile hall or their parents can come to the training. And we need you to do something with them for two months. Twice a week. But you can't say Jesus. What else is there? Can I spell it? And they said, we'll give you the gym that hasn't been open for 30 years to use. So we... Kathy and I and my kids, we swept out the gym. This is a lot, much longer story. It sounds long, but I'm actually giving you the short version. So we swept out the gym, and we had basketball and volleyball in there, and we, play, we were in there for two hours on Tuesdays and Thursdays. For, we were supposed to be there for two months. We ended up there for five years. And these kids were all on probation. These first 37 kids were all on probation. So you can imagine. They're not Christians. Not only that, they're all on probation. I'm on the way the very first night, and I'm scared. Yeah. Like, I, I'm, I'm having panic attacks. I have a 20-minute drive from Weaverville to Lewiston, and I'm having panic attacks, and I'm thinking, okay, what don't, I, I like, planned this whole message, and as I got close to the gym, I thought, well, that's a stupid message. <laughs> Kids are on probation. They're not going to want that message. And when I got about five minutes from the gym, and the Lord gave me the story. And the Lord said, tell them the story, and then give them the punchline at the end. I'll tell you the story. It's in my book, More Revolution. And I'm just going to give you the short version, so it's much better than this in the book. And I did a much better job with it when I told them the story that night. But I want to give you the short version. I told them about this guy named Johnny. Of course, everyone's Johnny, right? He's every mother's son. And he, he's in, he, it's his first year in high school, his first day in high school. And he's walking to school, and he passes by this jewelry store, and he sees something in the window. And at the first, he doesn't know it's a jewelry store. And he makes a note that there's something glistening in the window. He makes a note, and on the way home, he stops at the jewelry store and looks in the window. And when he looks in the window of this jewelry store, of course he's only 15, he sees this, what's glistening in the window, and it's a diamond. And he begins to look into the diamond, and as he looks into the diamond, suddenly he sees the woman of his dreams. The woman of his dreams. And so he goes back and forth, in, in, in front of that jewelry store for about five months, and one day he says, I've got to buy that ring for the woman of my dreams who I haven't yet met. And he goes into the jewelry store, and this is this big story I tell, and this old man meets him. He's about 40, behind the counter. <laughs> right? Everybody's an old man when you're 15. And the old man's rude to him. He says, what do you want, boy? He says, oh, 
And he's really nervous, and he's like, I, just, I saw this ring. And finally, he talks the old man into showing him the ring that's in the window that he's been watching for six months. And the old man brings the ring out, and he opens it up, and it's the first time he's not seen it. It's the first time he's seen it without it being behind glass. And he tries to get the ring, and the old man says, no, you can look at it, but you can't touch it. And while he's looking at the ring, suddenly he sees the woman of his dreams. She has long black hair, bright green eyes, and a body like... (laughs) And she's wearing a blue dress blowing in the wind. Now, he's seen her many times in the diamond. And as he's staring into the diamond, the old man being impatient, she reaches out to him as if to caress him, and he reaches back and he grabs the old man. (laughs) And the old man's like, what are you doing? And he gets so scared, he's like, and he runs out of the jewelry store all the way home. Stupid, Johnny, you're an idiot, you're stupid. (laughs) The story goes on and on, I tell much more of the story, but... Six months later, he notices that a woman is behind the counter on Friday. So he braves, the, he braves the jewelry store one more time, ends up in the jewelry store, talks to the lady, talks her into getting, letting him see the ring again. He sees the ring, and of course, what should come out of the diamond again? The woman of his dreams. So he tells the lady, I'll buy the ring. She says, oh, she must be a beautiful woman for you to pay $10,000 for a wedding ring. He has no idea. It was thousands. He makes a deal with her that he'll pay $100 every Friday. She puts it on layaway. He goes home. He has no job. You know, that's why they wrote the book of Job in the Bible. It's a book for teenagers. He goes and gets a job at a car wash, and he works every day. He, all he does is he goes to school, he does his homework, because he's a Christian, and then he goes to work. And every Friday, he brings $100. He puts $100 on that ring every Friday. He goes to work seven days a week, doesn't go to dances, doesn't do anything else, does his homework, and works. That's all he does. Goes to school, does his homework, and works for four years. At the end of four years, right before he graduates, he has the money to pay off the ring for the woman of his dream. Pays the ring off. Doesn't let anybody know he has it. About three months goes by. He comes home. And his parents are standing on the front porch. They're both weeping. He pulls up in his car. Sees them both weeping. He runs to the front porch. And his dad has a letter in his hand. And it says, U.S. Army. And he realizes that it's his draft notice. It's Vietnam. He gets drafted to Vietnam. He takes the ring with him into the, uh, into the boot camp. Because he doesn't want anybody to know he has it. And he... There's a locker inspection in which the ring gets revealed, and he ditches, finally decides he better ditch the ring, and he carves uh, carves a crevice in his helmet and puts the ring in there and puts duct tape in there and carries the ring with him all through boot camp in his helmet. How many know duct tape works for anything? You can make a chastity belt out of duct tape. Kind of. Anyway, comes in colors, too. Boot camp's over, and he ends up in Vietnam. On the plane going to Vietnam, all the men are weeping. Nobody wants to go to war, of course. He's in the plane, and he falls asleep. And when he falls asleep, he sees the woman of his dreams. And she comes to him, 
And she got, did I tell you? Long, blonde, black hair, green eyes. Did I tell you? A blue dress. She's got it all going on. And in the dream, he's weeping, and she puts her hand on his shoulder, and she looks in his eyes, and she says, it's going to be okay. When she says it's going to be okay, peace fills him. And as, he's, as she has his, her hand on his shoulder, she changes into a, a nurse's outfit. No, she doesn't get naked in the dream. She just goes, you know how dreams are. Just so you know what I'm teaching your kids. He ends up, they land in Vietnam in a dirt uh, runway, and it's just, you know, war is hell. And they're running through the jungle, and three of their people get killed coming right off the, the plane. And, and they go for months and months and months, and half of their troop dies, and we tell some of those stories. And then one day, they're in the middle of this field, and they're surrounded on all sides by the enemy. And the sergeant says, we're going to run through this, this field. We're going to jump out of this foxhole. We're going to run th- through this field and jump in the other foxhole. And we're going to fight our way out that way. When I say go, I want everybody to take off running. So the sergeant yells, go. And Johnny runs through the field with everybody else. And they run through the field under heavy fire. And they almost to the, they're almost to the foxhole. And Johnny loses his helmet. Gets in the foxhole and he starts yelling, I have to get my helmet. I have to get my helmet. And the sergeant's like, get down. I have to get my helmet. Jumps out. Runs and gets his helmet, because you know the ring's in the helmet. Runs back to the foxhole, and on the way back, he gets shot twice in the leg. Down he goes. He's hitting the artery. Takes him three hours to medevac him out. He almost dies. He ends up in a jungle hospital. He's in the hospital. He's in three days. They don't know if he's going to live. He wakes up out of a coma in the hospital, and he starts yelling. Where am I? Where's my helmet? And all of a sudden, he hears this woman's voice at the head of his bed. And she said, it's all right, Johnny Johnson. It's all right. (laughs) Yes, he's a Johnson. (laughs) Doesn't everybody want to be a Johnson? (laughs) And she walks, and and, and as she begins to comfort him from behind the headboard, she's comforting him. Your, your sergeant brought your helmet for you. And she begins to walk around the bed. And he's heard that voice before. And when she comes around the bed and hands him the helmet, he looks up and it's the woman of his dreams. Did I tell you she had long black hair? <laughs> green eyes. The story goes on. And he ends, she ends up being his nurse and doing physical therapy with him. And of course they fall in love. You can guess the story. They're sitting in the jungle porch of the hospital, and the, the, the surgeon has told him, you're going to go home. So he's been in the hospital five months. They release him to go home, and that night, he asks her to marry him. So they get married. They have this big wedding. He marries Maria. Maria's rich. And he, instead of giving her the ring at the wedding, he gives her a cheap $1,000 ring. $1,000 ring. Anyway, okay, so it's supposed to be funny. And um, because he wants to give her the ring on the honeymoon, at the honeymoon. So they finish their, you know, the wedding, and then they, they go, they have this cottage on the beach, and, and she's in the bathroom getting ready, and he's sitting on the bed, and he's like, Maria, Maria, hurry up, I have something for you. 
She's like, I have something for you too, Johnny. He's like, I, I know, but I, I have something for you. She says, so do I. Johnny, good things are worth waiting for. Several minutes goes by, she comes out. Did I tell you she has long black hair, <laughs> green eyes, and she's dressed like you don't need to know. And, she's, and he's like, come here, I have something for you. She's like, Johnny, I have something for you. And he's, I know, I know, sit here first, sit before, just sit here. So he takes out the ring for the woman of his dreams. She gets the ring in the box and she opens the velvet box and she looks at the ring and he's like, put it on, put it on. She puts it on and it fits her perfectly because I wrote the story. <laughs> She's like, he goes, you like it, you like it. She's like, oh yeah, it's nice. That's very nice, thank you. He's like, nice. He's thinking, nice? This is not nice. It's beautiful. Anyway, they get in bed, they consummate the marriage, you know, consummate the marriage. Next morning, they get up, and they're on the beach. And she says, last one to the water is a loser. And she puts on her bathing suit and runs to the water. He's like, hey, Maria, take off the ring. Maria, take off the ring. She's like, no, no, it's okay. It's okay. And so he gets out on the beach with her, and they're out there in the waves, and they're frolicking. You know what frolicking is? (laughs) Frolic. It's a new word. And they're just laughing and having fun and on the beach and you know, in the waves. And suddenly this big wave crashes over them, washes them both up on the shore. And they get up and they're both laughing. And she looks down and the ring is gone. And she says, Johnny, my ring is gone. He can't believe it. He can't believe it. He goes over on the beach and he sits down and he's, just flops down in the, on the, in the sand and he's, he's weeping. And she comes over and she puts his, her hand on her shoulder, his shoulder and trying to comfort. Johnny, it's okay. My parents are wealthy. They'll buy me the same ring. Listen, Johnny, it's okay. I'm so sorry. Johnny, my, my parents will buy me the same ring. It's okay. We'll, we'll get it back. See, Maria thought that the value of the diamond The value of the ring was in the gold and the diamonds. What she didn't realize was the true value of the ring was in the blood, sweat, and tears it took to get the ring from the battlefield all the way to the honeymoon suite. See, the ring is your virginity. The greater the battle, the bigger the trophy. The reason why God gave you a sex drive years before he wanted you to have sex inside of marriage is because anyone can give away something expensive, but only people who understand sacrifice can give away something valuable. So God gave you something that you can give one person. You can only give it away to one person. And how many know everybody's trying to get it? Because it's valuable. Everybody is trying to convince you. The world is trying to convince you. You should give it to me, or you should give it to anybody. But how many understand that people that understand sacrifice? They take the ring from the battlefield all the way to the honeymoon suite. So on the night they lay with their lover, they had something that they had to fight for. 
They have something to give that they had to fight for. Because the value of your virginity is actually in the blood, sweat, and tears it took to get it from the battlefield all the way to the honeymoon suite. And here's the problem. Nobody knows it. Nobody knows it. So we tell our kids, you're going to get a disease. You're going to get some. How many know it's very difficult to, to create a positive through a bunch of negatives? And no one tells our kids, hey, this sex drive is good. The greater the sex drive, the greater the trophy. David was under a curse. You probably know the story. It's in 2 Samuel 24. The whole land was under a curse and people were dying. And the prophet came to him and said, you want to stop this curse? He said, yes. He said, go to this place, this guy's house, this field, this really, really wealthy guy. He said, build an altar, offer a sacrifice, and the curse will be broken. David rushes to the man's property. He gets to the property. The man meets him out on the property. He says, King David, what are you doing here? He said, I've come to buy your property. Why? So that I can build an offer, offer a sacrifice and break the curse over the land. The man says to him, I will give you the land for free. You're my king. He said, far be it from me that I should offer to God something that costs me nothing. See, this is the kingdom. This is the untold story. Now back to the gym with my 37 kids. I tell them this story. Before the story, we played basketball for an hour. They were grabbing girls' crotches and their, and their breasts, and they're their, their using every kind of language you can possibly think of. You know, they're gangsters. Wannabes, at least. They're sitting on park benches that we put inside the gym, because it's all we had. And when I started telling the story, they're like, how long is this going to take? Do we have to listen? And Kathy had made him chocolate chip cookies, and we got him Cokes, and we're like, doing everything we can to like, pacify him while they listen. I had broken up three fights before I preached with them, taking away knives from them. They're sitting on the benches. I'm telling the story. I am super nervous. I'm making the story up as I go, because I got it five minutes before I got to the gym. I'm telling this story, and I told it much better than I just told it to you, because I gave him the whole story. I get to the place where I get about 10 minutes in the story, and now they're listening intently. There is not one word. There's no complaining. They are just listening intently. I get to the place where she lost the ring, and they simultaneously go, oh. <laughs> one guy's like, effing Dude. Which I think was a good response at the time. (laughs) Then I tell him, the ring is your virginity. You will never see anyone receive truth like that. Tears start falling onto the ground in this concrete gym, falling. Every head bowed. I didn't tell them to bow their head. Every head bowed. The girl up front, who's the most has the biggest struggles. She said this out loud. No one effing told me this. She said, the guy who I broke up two fights with him, toughest guy in my whole gym, he said, no one effing told me this, man. They've been lying to me. This was the beginning. This was day one. Kids who didn't know God, weeping in the front because they knew they'd been lied to. 
They get, I finish the story. I tell them about the ring. I tell them about her losing the ring. I tell them the ring is your virginity. I tell them what your virginity is for. They've all lost their virginity. I have 12 years in there that have lost their virginity. Then I say, and God. They said I couldn't say Jesus. And God's in the restoration business who would like to get their virginity back. They're like, what? I said, God said, ain't nothing impossible. Who'd like to have their virginity back so you have something to fight for? Are you for real? I am. I would. Dude, I effing would. Okay, man. I was with those kids for five years. And here's what I learned the first night. I came back, I wept all the way home. The world is hungry for the truth. I'm telling you, the world, you get the world alone. Like you get them in a gang, yeah, you get them alone. The world is hungry for the truth. But nobody is telling these kids their truth. They're telling them, don't, you're going to get a disease, something's going to happen, you're going to get pregnant. Those things are all true. But how about the vision? Without a vision, People go unrestrained. But happy is he who keeps the law. What law? The law of constraint. You will constrain your options if you actually have a vision. But if all you have is a big no, you got a big sex drive. And how many of you know that your frontal cortex of your brain is not developed until you're in your early 20s? They say 22, around 22. You know what that frontal part of your brain does? It's the cause and effect part of your brain. It's the part that analyzes what's going to happen if you do something wrong or right. Guess why? You, those of you who have teenagers and your kid does something stupid, like he jumps off the roof with cardboard wings and you say, what were you thinking? And he says, I don't know. He actually doesn't know. No, your kid's not stupid, but the part of his brain that analyzes what's going to happen when he hits the ground, it hasn't been developed yet. So think about this. They, you have the highest sex drive the first five years from, from year one to year five when you hit puberty. The first five years, you have the highest sex drive that you'll ever have in your entire life. And you have no brain. You have no cause and effect. It's like running around with a gun with no safety. Full of bullets. I've never said that before. That's probably won't be saying that again. I'm just saying, you want to know why the kids are in trouble? Because the part of the brain that analyzes cause and effect isn't developed, and they have a monster for a sex drive. And they come to church, and how many know if the church shames it, then they're like, well, I don't want to come here. Why do you think we're losing our young people? You know, a little Johnny goes to, you know, whatever, like a Jesus culture youth event, and he's worshiping God, and, you know, he just hit puberty like the, two months before. He's worshiping Jesus. Jesus, I love you. You are amazing. I want to have sex with somebody. And he thinks he's the only one, because when you're in a shame culture, no one tells anyone else that they're doing that, except for the people who shouldn't be. So finally he goes to see his youth pastor because he's a good kid. And he says to this youth pastor, you know, I'm having this problem. You know, what's, what's the problem? Oh, I want to have sex with somebody. And the youth pastor says, we'll cast that spirit of lust out of you. <laughs> so he gathers all of his youth leaders, you know, 
And they start praying. How do you feel? I want to have sex with somebody. And the first thing they learn in a moral revolution conference is that's called normal. It's called, I'm okay. Hey, I'm good. There's nothing wrong with me. And then I start to learn, how do I manage this sex drive? How do I manage this thing? I need tools to manage this because right now, it's managing me. I think, you know, if I'm awake 20 hours a day, I'm thinking about sex 19 hours and 59 minutes. (laughs) It's the truth. And I'm not even trying to. It just, it didn't happen before I hit puberty. It's happening to me. No, I'm saying, it's happening to me. And for most kids, they don't hear about sex until it happens to them, so they're not even prepared for what happened to them. They don't even know what happened to them. And all of a sudden, the crazy kid in school that hit puberty first, that they're like, ah, kids, ah, he's, he's gross. All of a sudden, he's cool. Because he's the only kid who's talking to him talking to your kid I'm sorry you're uncomfortable I have seven points on how to create a healthy sexual culture I think I'll preach them in the next few weeks but this is the first one talk to your kids before you do deal with your own shame Practice with one another. Use the word penis and vagina. Just use it like, like you say arm, leg. Just use it like it's a potty part. It's okay. Just pretend you're a doctor and you're supposed to. You, know, you can't say, well, your finger's got an infection. You know, it's, it's not going to work. My what? Your finger. You know, just pretend you're a doctor and talk to one another. No, I, I am serious about this. Talk to one another and use the terms so that when you get in front of your kid, you don't turn red and look like you want to run out of the room because it doesn't matter what you say. If, you, if the kid figures out that you are shamed, it doesn't matter if you say, this isn't shameful. If you act like it's shameful, it will be. And if you've been telling him it's his Twitter forever, you're going to have to figure out some way to tell him it isn't. These are the things we must do. Like We can't confront the immorality of our age without teaching people the right way. And I have a feeling that if my 37 kids in that gym said, no one's effing told me about this, there's probably a whole world of people out there that are saying this close to the same thing. I'm telling you. And your kid, if he's a teenager already, he'll be like, I don't want to talk about this. Okay, well you can just turn your back and I'll tell you over here. So I'm going to tell you about it. And then you make it lighthearted. It's not a big deal. I'm not talking about like having sex in front of them or anything, but I'm also not talking to them about like, you came from a stork. It's a big stork. You were a big baby. You know, that's stupid stuff. You know, the, the fact that that this is a part of your marriage needs to be known by them. It's a beautiful part of your marriage. It's a gift. God gave you a gift. He gave your marriage a gift. This is His wedding gift to you. It's beautiful. It shouldn't be shamed. 
I'm supposed to be done. You should read Song of Solomon. One Sunday I was going to teach on sex and I just read Song of Solomon 8. By the time I got done, most of the people were... Like, oh my God, Martha. What Bible's he reading out of? That's not my translation. No, honey, those pages stick together in your Bible. They've never been opened. Um, if you want to know what God thinks about sex, read Song of Solomon. It's God's idea. There's the whole beautiful analogy. People are like, oh, that's about the bride and the bridegroom. It is first about yours before it's about his. Anyway, lots of good word. Okay. It's over. <laughs> you can take off your seatbelt. Was that pretty G? Pretty G-rated? Nobody offended? Okay. (laughs) All right, you personally. Stand up, please. Let me pray for you. You probably need it. (laughs) Thank you. I know it. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. So fun. Your statue is like a palm tree. Your breasts are like its clusters. I said I will climb the palm tree and take hold of its fruit stalks. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine and the fragrance of your breath be like apples and your mouth be like the best wine. Uh, that's in the Bible. God wrote that. Just thought I'd, that's a medium one. Gave you medium. Put your hand on your heart, please. Lord help these people they need help Lord I just pray you would help them and the people from iBethel TV that are about to cancel their (laughs) subscription Lord we pray that you would just Lord just give mercy to those people in Jesus name and Lord we just pray that you would help our young people Lord that every person in this room would develop a sexually healthy culture a kingdom culture that embraces sex as a beautiful gift from God in the right context. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so very much.